Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. Turn with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 1 verses 1 to 9. Cannot tell you just how eager I am for us to begin our trek through the book of Esther. It is a wild adventure. Esther chapter 1 verses 1 to 9. And I've titled tonight's message, Three Feasts in the Year 3 of the King's Reign. Three feasts to celebrate year three of the king's reign. Now, some of you uh, English majors or literary uh, aficionados, how many people just really love literature or are actually studying literature? Show of hands. No hands. Okay, one person. Great, two people. Excellent. There's a slogan out there among those who study English literature. A mantra, an axiom, after Shakespeare, everyone plagiarized. Okay, so there's this notion that Shakespeare wrote so prolifically, and wrote so authoritatively, and wrote such masterpieces, that everyone after him was borrowing from him. But I'm going to tell you that Shakespeare is guilty of plagiarism himself. Shakespeare was an enormous borrower. He stole from the Bible, left and right, up and down. In fact, the greatest works ever written cannot escape Scripture. I would venture to argue, you could not tell me, one of the great stories that have captivated audiences and it not have gospel undercurrents. It have gospel undertones. Even the ones that might come to your mind that seem least Christian or most pagan or even most, dare I say, occultic. They're all borrowing. They're all stealing and robbing. Disney is Esterian and not the other way around. We would lose Snow White and Rapunzel and Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Little Red Riding Hood without the original story of Esther. The little Hebrew orphan girl named Hadassah, who, raised by her loving uncle Mordecai in the faraway kingdom of Persia, defied all odds to become the queen named Star. Esther is the name Star. It's not her original name. She's given the name Star in a foreign land. So the original inspiration for all fairy tales is really rooted in this historical fact. Let's dig in. Mordecai, the cousin, technically, who behaves like an uncle. Mordecai, Ezra, or more probably, Nehemiah, is the author of this book because they have intimate expertise on 
Persian royalty. They have up close and personal knowledge of what it's like to be high up in Persia, and yet they're Jewish and have a very familiar acquaintance with the ways of Judaism. Whoever it is, it is a Persian Jew living at the end of Old Testament history. That is history that's recorded in the Old Testament books, which ends about 473 years before the birth of Christ. Now, only Nehemiah and Malachi report historical events later than Esther. So that just tells you where Esther is at in the timeline of the Bible. Esther's towards the end of the Old Testament. Babylon has sacked the kingdom of Judah, leveled Jerusalem, demolished the temple, and has left the land of Israel as a desolation. Then, as Daniel records, Babylon was conquered and replaced by which empire? Anyone know? Good. The Medo-Persian or the Persian Empire. 58 years before Esther becomes queen of Persia. 58 years before Esther becomes queen of Persia. Anyone really good at math? How, how long ago was 58 years for us? Something five. It ends with five. I know that much. What would it be? 75? 1975? So back, think... 1975, for our reference. 58 years before Esther becomes queen of Persia, King Cyrus had let Jews return and rebuild the temple. Now, only some of them left to go and rebuild the temple. That's the whole story of of, um, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Now, that temple was finished only 38 years before Esther is crowned. Now, we'll fast forward. 34 years after Esther's coronation, King Artaxerxes, the son of Esther's husband, okay, I want you to pay close attention to this, the son of Esther's husband, so either Esther's son or Esther's stepson, the son of Queen Vashti, we're not sure, he's going to release his cupbearer by the name of Nehemiah to go and rebuild the wall around a defenseless temple. This is fascinating, you guys. Did you know that this was close together like this? It's amazing. He may have been Esther's son, we're not sure. We know that King Artaxerxes certainly sympathized with the Jews, had a soft spot for Nehemiah, because, at least in part, the events and the drama of Esther. Now, it is interesting that in Nehemiah, as he opens his book, when he goes and makes the request of King Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the, the, the wall around Jerusalem, Asking leave for like 12 or 13 years. That's a long time. He's a valuable guy. Nehemiah specifically notes that when he went to the king, someone is sitting next to him. Do you remember? 
This is never mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. When you go and you get an audience with the king, no one ever bothers to mention the queen. That's not being rude. It's just you're there to hear from the king. You're there to speak to the king. You're going to get what you want from the king, or you're going to get your head chopped off by the king. But Nehemiah says, I went and I spoke to King Artaxerxes, and I asked him for this. And the queen was sitting next to him. We're not sure. A very compelling argument can be made that that is none other than Esther. And it's demonstrating her influence over the king at the time of Nehemiah. Esther is essentially the book of Exodus from Babylonian exile. You've got this figure who rises up, Haman, and he's essentially the pharaoh of Persia. Now, Haman the main villain of Esther was an Agagite. An Agagite. I know that's a mouthful. He descended from Agag. Does anyone remember Agag in scripture? Some of you might think, yeah, that's familiar, but I can't remember exactly what happened. Well, Agag was the king of the Amalekites who descended from Esau, the twin brother of Jacob, who was then uh, renamed Israel. The Amalekites attack the Israelites as they are coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. And so God ordered Saul to kill all the Amalekites. They were absolutely wicked. It's not genocide, it's ethnocide, or whatever you would say. Uh, it's an ethnic cleansing. It's not a, it's not a, I'm sorry, that's the wrong word. I'm thinking of ethics. It's not an ethnic cleansing. My goodness. I was telling someone earlier, I feel like I'm like allergies or something today. It, it, he's, 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 uh, wiping out people because they are evil and wicked and they've, they've operated against God's purposes and against God's people. They're brutal. They're depraved. And they're unrelenting. They're unrepentant in their depravity. And so God, righteously, rightly, justifiably, says, Saul, King Saul, first king of Israel, I want you to kill them all. But Saul disobeys. He does most of it. But he keeps back some animals. And he spares the king's life, Agag. So the prophet Samuel comes to King Saul. says, what in the world are you doing? What's that sound of bleating sheep I hear? You're supposed to wipe everything out. And Saul said, well, well, well. And Samuel takes his sword and goes over. And scripture says, Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. Oof, butchered him. It was a nasty sight. Now... Over 500 years later, there's going to be this figure named Haman. And he maintains hatred for the Jews. Because his great, 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 great granddad was hacked to pieces by the prophet in Israel. Mordecai refuses to bow before the Amalekite. And we need to pause at this moment. We need to understand that we cannot comprehend all the good that God is intending for us when he commands us to do hard things. When he says to Saul, Saul, I'm serious. 
I want you to kill them all. And Saul goes, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to do it 99.9% obedient. It leads to this drama with Agag that over 500 years later turns into this epic, almost genocide of God's people in Persia. When God says something clearly, do not disobey. He's trustworthy. He's doing good. His commands are only good. And we cannot comprehend all the good that God is intending to do when he commands us to do every little thing that he does. It's all in love. The book of Esther does not mention God by design. Not once. It's the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned. That's a weird book. That should catch our attention. And the design is that God is sovereignly working even when you and I cannot trace his hand. Even when it seems like God's not here. Even when it seems like none of God's people are paying attention to him. Even when times seem dark, when it's the dark ages, God is still the king of heaven and earth, operating his good purposes and bringing about his promises for the good of his people everywhere at all times. Not one mention of God. And yet this book is entirely about God. The Hebrews, after the events in Esther, began the festival of Purim, which led up to the Passover when they would read the book of Esther, remembering how, again, God saved them from a holocaustic plot of a tyrant. It reminds me, Psalm 121, verse 4 says, Behold, look, pay attention to this. He who keeps Israel will not slumber and will not sleep. Your God, Christian, never rests from working all things for your good. That is a remarkably comforting thought. Everything in your life is his love to you. Everything in your life is Him working good purposes to conform you into the image of, you, of His Son. Everything. Three feasts. We'll take them in stride. Feast number one. A feast for the elite. Verses one to four. Now, it happened in the days of Ahasuerus. The Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa. In the third year of his reign, he held a feast for all his princes and servants, the military officers of Persia and Media, Medea, the, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence while he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. 180 days. That's a long time. Now, here's the, here's the big picture I want you to get tonight. How does the historical account of Esther begin? What is the divine author, God, speaking through whoever the human author is, to give us a first impression? First impressions are being made, and they're communicating something. They're setting up the entirety of this book. What is being communicated? Are we being presented with the grandeur and the might and the wealth and the power of God? Or are we setting our gaze on the overwhelming, intimidating, extravagance 
of man. How many days, how many hours in your day are you focused on how, see, how things seem in the world? You're, you're sitting there thinking, man, the people who are in power in our nation, I'm a little worried about that. If not a lot worried about that. World War III is about to break out if something goes wrong. My whole life is determined by those who are in power and doesn't seem like they really care about people. It just seems like they're wanting to line their pockets with money. It feels intimidating. It feels scary. It's almost overwhelming. Just like we're meant to feel at the beginning of Esther. And by the end of this book, we're going to be reminded, ah, that's right, my God is the king. And he's working all his purposes in every evil desire man has. The empire of Persia is at least about 50 million people strong. I know that doesn't sound like a lot to us today, but in accordance with the world population at that time, monstrous. A military of one million. The king sits comfortable, uncontested, untouched on his exalted throne in a hill in Susa, the citadel, the Acropolis, the high mountain palace. King Ahasuerus rules an empire stretching all the way from India in Asia, the Middle East, and the Mediterranean as far as Africa. A wide sweeping empire over the known world. Never before in history had the world known such a conquering force so expansive that it dominated 127 individual city-states or provinces or areas, countries one might even say. So the first of the three feasts is celebrating the third year of his reign where he's hosting each prime minister, each prince of all those places he's conquered. Hundreds of generals, hundreds of landowners and nobles fill the banquet halls decorated with displays of imperial wealth and strength. How wealthy? How strong? Six months of lavish partying without a break. That's how rich. That's how strong. Enough money and sway to simply relax for half an entire year. Yeah, we don't have to worry about anyone starting any wars with us. Can you imagine that? That's dominance. That's amazing. What's the point? God's writing this book anonymously. And he's saying, I love it when the odds seem stacked against my people. The Persians had defeated Babylon and they would go on to reign for 200 years. It wouldn't be until the Greek Empire would muster the grit to beat them. Now, this is absolutely jaw-dropping. That's exactly where we find ourselves in history. King Darius has been defeated by the Athenians, Greeks, at Marathon. You remember the, the sprinter runs 
the distance, that marathon. I'm never going to run a marathon. What is it again? Is it 26 miles, 26 point something miles, or 23.6 miles? What is it? 26.2 miles he ran in order to report about the battle. That's where it got its name, Marathon, the Battle of Marathon. King Darius has amassed an enormous assault to exact his vengeance, but he dies. And so his son, Xerxes, takes the throne. First, the new King Xerxes puts Egypt back in its place, and then he sets his sight on Greece. He wants to avenge his father, and so he wants to launch attacks which are now infamously known as the Greco-Persian Wars. The most famous of those wars or battles involved King Leonidas and 300 warriors who valiantly gave their lives protecting the city-state of Sparta against the Persian superpower of 250,000 soldiers. Eventually, the Greeks, led by Alexander the Great, will prevail over the king of Persia, which is why we now know him by the Greek pronunciation of his name, Xerxes. That's the Greek pronunciation of his name. That's not what his people called him. The Persians called him Kasharsha. That was his name in Persia. Hebrews called him Ahasverosh. Or Ahasuerus. We're reading about King Xerxes. Esther married King Xerxes. Esther married the bigger than legend, larger than myth, King Xerxes. If you've done any time in history, you know how significant that is. This is a magnificent moment in history. I mean, unparalleled almost. Leonidas, the great heroic king of Greece, was killed by the very king Esther conquered. 300 heroes failed to save Sparta from a superpower. One girl changed forever. Now, this feast that we read about here at the beginning of the book is a strategic six-month war council. It's a summit. It's on purpose. It's not just showing off. It's preparing for something. This big war council, strategizing, preparing, devising a massive assault. Preparing for the Greco-Persian Wars. And it's done so with such extravagance. It's celebrating certain victory in advance. This is how arrogant, how boastful, how overly confident. As a matter of fact, Herodotus, the famous historian, records the edict sent out by King Xerxes, saying this to all his nobles, all his princes, all his generals, this is how you shall best please me. When I declare the time of your coming, when I tell you, hey, this is when the the six-month war summit's going to begin, every one of you must appear. It's mandatory. And with a good will, you better come with a smile on your face. And whosoever comes with his army best equipped 
shall receive from me such gifts as are reckoned most precious. So why is he showing off his wealth? Why is he showing off his power? Why is he displaying all this in such a way? This magnificent display is to prove to all his people his ability to supply on his promise. I will reward those who prepare their armies best. Feast 2, verses 5 to 8. And when these days were fulfilled, the king held a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. That's unimaginable. A whole week of feasting for everyone in the capital city. You might have heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. They were an ancient wonder in the ancient world. The Persians continued that trend with their famous royal parks that were attached to the palaces. I mean, I want you to imagine being a young beggar, being like Aladdin in the, the citadel of Susa, and you're eating the king's food in the royal palace that's so vast... They've actually transplanted entire ecosystems into levels of cascading buildings spilling over as this pyramid of separate oases. It's literally giving the appearance of a waterfall of rainforest. I mean, it's this paradisiacal structure, this unbelievable, people would come from all over just to look at it. And here you are from the king's generosity, allowed into his palace as a beggar to eat from the king's food, the king's pantry, the king's silverware. You're overwhelmed by this experience. He's wanting to get everyone on the bandwagon for this campaign. It's going to be the largest assault ever. He needs to make sure that there's no protests outside his capital. And so he's bringing everyone in Whining and dining. Verse 6. There were hangings of fine white and blue linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble pillars and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, of marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. I mean, draping over these towering castle walls are long flowing banners of bright white and blue to give the impression that the sky itself is pouring in like a shiny Niagara of satin with flashing streams of glistening threads, sparkling scarlet to contrast against the massive columns of gray marbled ivory. Blinding white corridors lined with sparkling furniture. Even the floor. You look down, you look up, it's a masterpiece. You look beside yourself, it's a masterpiece. You look down at the floor and a masterpiece of tiny fragments of turquoise stones, translucent marble, pearlescent shells, and various gems which form this magnificent design across a terrific area. A huge area, larger than Trinity Community Church's entire property. It just would have been breathtaking. Upwards, sideways, below. Beauty. It's no accident that as described by the author of this book, Persia's palace, which is under the influence of a demon, as we read in Daniel's prophecy, 
resembles none other than King Yahweh's temple. No irony. Because Satan is not a creator. Satan is a perverter. Satan is a counterfeiter. (laughs) Satan is a destroyer who can only imitate and decimate. I want to tell you something this evening. I did not plan to say this. But there are two invisible chess players in this book. And they are not equals. There's the great God and creator, the infinitely holy triune God, the sovereign God. And there is one of his creations, a fallen angel, stupidly warring against him. Sometimes as we look at the world, we can begin to think, you know what? Satan is a horrifying foe. We could even become scared of Satan. We see that he has such sway. He's the prince of the power of the air. It's like his influence is pervasive. It's like it's oxygen. Look at the world. But if you meditate long enough, you realize, wait a second. Satan's not omniscient. Therefore, Satan makes mistakes. Wait a second. That's not going far enough. It's almost like that itself is revelatory, isn't it? Oh, Satan makes mistakes? Yeah, he does. Satan is at war with God, which means what? He doesn't make mistakes. He only makes mistakes. Everything he does is a mistake. And so let us not be intimidated. He can impress for a moment, but it ends in destruction. And so rather than praising their God in his temple under the protection of his Davidic king, the nation Israel is forced to behold the demonic counterfeit of a foreign superpower. That is what is pressed upon us as we read. That is how the Hebrew readers would have read. This is wrong. This is wrong. Verses 7 to 8. And drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's hand, and the drinking was done according to the law. Here's the law. There was no compulsion. For so the king had established it for each official of his household that he should do according to what pleased each person. Okay. So although we're reading this and we're seeing that generosity is characterizing King Xerxes at this time because he's wanting to get everyone fat and sassy and excited about his campaign. He shares his own wine. He shares his own dishware with everyone, even poor people. You might say, wow, this was a great time in history. We're actually quite surprised to read that this is ancient history. That's a good king by worldly standards. A king that you would want. A king that people would vote for. There's only one rule. Drink as much as you want. There's no limits. There's no compulsion. No one's going to come and swap the, the, the cup out of your hand. Drink like kings. Freedom. Most scholars, and I do not say this to be grotesque, most scholars agree that this seven-day period, this week of feasting, was nothing short of an orgy for seven days. Drunken revelry. Does that sound familiar? 
You know, that, that's the world in which we live, isn't it? It's what's happening out there. What effect does opulence and freedom have on lost souls? What else are they going to do with it? But, says the world, freedom of expression is good in its own right. Sexual exploration, experimentation. Just look at how he treats the women. I mean, come on, this tells us everything. And that brings us to our final point, verse 9. A feast for the ladies. Queen Vashti also held a feast for the women in the royal house, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. It's very progressive, isn't it? All the ladies get their own party. Yet we would be naive to overlook the women are feasting separately in order to avoid the debauchery of the men. This is why Vashti is going to be reluctant to come and be paraded in front of a bunch of drunken, disgusting punks at the order of the king. Now, you might be reading this and, and saying, so far, we don't know that yet, right? So, so far, doesn't this just glorify paganism? I mean, won't this promote worldliness? That's kind of the point. It's Persia that's prospering and misusing its prosperity instead of Israel. Israel should be prospering. Israel should be obedient to God and enjoying the covenant blessings. And all of this reminds the Hebrew man or woman what he or she has lost. Life used to be like this under King Solomon. And because of our idolatry, we have been given over to the unsaved nations. Israel now struggles to rebuild from an ash heap of ruins We're waiting for the son of David to come and restore the fortunes of Israel as the prophets have all promised. And when he arrives, the nation will be a united kingdom under which every nation, including Persia, will prosper as well in repentance and allegiance to King Jesus. Likewise, you and I await his return today to rule the nations. And at the height of leisure, tragedy is about to strike. The third year of a golden reign is about to foreshadow the Third Reich of Germany when Hitler hunts the Jews. Likewise, we are the enemies of the ruler of this world. Prince Satan does hate us, and he will stop at nothing to kill. So do not be distracted by the comforts of your current life, as many Jews probably were here in Persia. He wants to fatten us like lambs for slaughter. Should you practice comfortable living now, what will you do when the heat is turned on and it costs something to follow Christ? What will we do when it costs us our life? God's people, like Esther, know that they have been born into such a time as this. The sovereign God has designed us, created us, and brought us into history for today. Don't think that you are, you somehow came into existence and God says, oh, I'll save them. No, he designed you. He called you for adoption. He chose you in his love. 
to be his people in America right now. Do you understand that? God hand-selected us. Better yet, God hand-created us to be here now for his glory. Doesn't that give you a boldness? Doesn't that give you courage? Romans 12, Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. If we don't do that now, we won't do it then. When the stake is set on fire, when the guillotine is sharpened, when the gun is drawn. But if we do live as living sacrifices now, we will then. Practice comfort now, you'll practice comfort when it comes to making decisions for Christ that cost our lives. Who we are in that moment will be determined the next second and the second after that. Let's all of us remember that when Esther is written, Xerxes has suffered a humiliating defeat after boasting his wealth and power to a wise war council for half a year. History is written. King Jesus wins. And in the words of Karen Jobes, who wrote a commentary on this book, the one who opposes Christ the King opposes God. To such a person, the Esther story stands as a warning that whatever ease and prosperity one might enjoy, whatever worldly power and position have been attained, ultimately, there will be a reversal of fortune that will end in death and destruction. But for those who kiss the Son, eternal life and glory. Father, we ask that you would send this home to our hearts and as we discuss the book of Esther together in these opening verses. O Lord, we would ask that you would give us fellowship together with you and with your Son, the King of heaven and the King of earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.